0: <laughs> all right hey uh this is dominic preziosi at the commonwealth podcast i'm here with a couple of my uh, favorite co uh co-workers matt sitman
1: uh nicole ann lobo and um,
0: what do you do here matt I'm an associate editor. So I think here. You're the associate editor. Yeah, alone <laughs> associate editor. And Nicole Ann.
1: Um, and I'm the Garvey writing fellow.
0: And so uh, we're gonna uh, hear a lot more from Matt and Nicole Ann in a second. Um, f- uh, later on we have Regina Munch, our assistant editor and managing editor, Kate Lucky talking to Jenny Odell, the digital artist and the author of How to Do Nothing. But first, what are we going to be talking about in a minute?
2: Yeah, we wanted to talk about the democratic debates and the ongoing democratic primary and you know if you're wondering why you're hearing us now this is a slightly new format and the podcast will be coming out in a greater frequency and we wanted to begin our episodes with you hearing more from the editors and us discussing some of the news of the day so this is going to be our first time trying that yeah and you'll both be back here in a second yeah We're looking
3: forward today. to that. Yeah, great. <laughs>
0: Matt, you wrote a review, I guess, or an assessment of the first round of the uh, Democratic presidential debates last week.
2: I did. What would you like to know about them? <laughs> uh, I said many things. I talked about many candidates. Well, as uh, I said to you, I think – I uh, talked about the format. And you I, know, I, so I, I think I said
0: thank you for taking one for the team and the one, uh-huh. you were the one who actually had to sit through both nights and then write about it as well. But um, what were your – I think I sort of – what I liked uh, that you did was the way you framed it. You said, well, I don't want to really talk about who won, who lost, but.
2: Right, yeah. I, I prefer to think about the debates as who helped themselves and who hurt themselves, who kind of positioned themselves well to move forward in the campaign, who might have strengthened their support from important demographics or donors or caught the attention of the writers and intellectuals who can kind of boost a candidacy. Again, rather than speaking of winning or losing because there were 10 candidates on stage each night these were two nights of debates i watched all 4 hours of this <laughs> and i just think it's yeah it's very hard to to tell who might have even won because because there were 10 candidates on stage each night and the, the debates were limited to 2 hours each you know and the answers you were allowed to give were 60 seconds and 30 seconds in reply then it was very hard to say much at length to say much of substance and then even if you did make a have a great response to a certain question you might not be heard from again for 20 or 30 minutes. So it was hard to build momentum. And, yeah, so I think the format just lent itself to thinking about more who, who kind of made you notice them a little more uh, or or who, again, kind of seemed more polished than you expected or who, who really grabbed on to one particular issue and held it aloft, mm-hmm. again, rather than... Again, speaking of victors or who dominated the debates, or so something it was, so like that.
0: if that is your criteria, who mm-hmm. who do you think kind of did him or herself biggest favors?
2: Well, this is a case in which the conventional wisdom is right that Kamala Harris really helped herself with her very pointed exchange with Joe Biden about busing and and desegregation in the seventies. I do think it's not a necessarily a, a clean victory for her in the sense that. You know, she her demeanor on stage and the way she pitched herself as someone who could prosecute the the case against Trump, mm-hmm. I, I think it reminds you of her res- record as a prosecutor in California, which is not always a, a very progressive record. Mm-hmm. I think Elizabeth Warren clearly was someone who stood out in the first night of the debates. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought Julian Castro also mm-hmm. really dominated discuss- the discussion of immigration that first night. Mm-hmm. I thought. And this is – I mentioned all this in my piece. I thought Bernie Sanders gave some very strong answers on foreign policy. And and to be honest, I thought Mayor Pete didn't impress. I thought maybe given his sort of brainy, wonky persona, he would really stand out in the debates. But you know, he was asked about his handling of this – a white policeman killing a black man and shooting – fatally shooting, I should say, a black man in, in South Bend. He kind of was flat, I thought. So I think coming out of the debate, Warren, Bernie – Harris, they helped themselves. Castro helped himself. I thought Biden seemed kind of confused, uh, uh, slow-footed, stuck in the past. And he did drop in the polls that have been done since the debate, and I expect him to keep dropping, to be honest.
1: Yeah, I guess within the language of like hurting and helping, do you think that the presence of more minor candidates really affected the way that more major candidates were perceived? Like I'm thinking particularly of people like Marianne Williamson who sort of
0: dominated. It was only a matter of time before (laughs) Marianne Williamson was introduced. (laughs) Sooner than I thought, but yeah.
1: (laughs) She really did kind of dominate, I feel like, a lot of social media and a lot of Mm. popular coverage Mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. But I wonder whether her presence served to really distract from um, the candidates who maybe needed to be distinguished further from each other what
2: were your thoughts on that, Matt? Um, well, I, part of what happened was that the, some of the minor candidates, like Eric Swalwell, the the second night, you know, they seemed to constantly be sniping and talking over people, trying to kind of inject themselves into the debate. And I thought it just meant that, again, it was already a condensed format. So sometimes the this kind of clown car of minor candidates had the effect of just sucking up oxygen and and not letting. They were so hungry to get just a little bit of slice of prime time that they – they ended up talking over people a lot and it meant that the people you wanted to hear explain some of their plans at length weren't able to. As for Marianne, I mean, she was fabulous. <laughs> she was just, she was wonderful. I mean, very strange, bizarre. There's, there's no, I hope she gets nowhere near the presidency. But I did think her closing statement was fascinating when she talked about the way Trump had reached into all of our psyches mm-hmm. and was uh, using politics, harnessing politi- uh, fear for his politics mm-hmm. and that she wanted to confront him on the battlefield with love <laughs> and it was hokey you know uh, one of my friends kept joking like where are her healing crystals you know and uh she had this kind of weird self-help guru kind of vibe going on but she was kind of interesting i don't think she distracted because she she made a few comments during the actual debate she didn't interrupt people that much and then her closing comment was kind of interesting so i didn't think she took away from much she was just this odd presence that would occasionally pop up and say something a little offbeat but sometimes a little interesting.
0: There was one thing, Matt, I just wanted to follow up with you on, and that's the uh, – you said you thought that uh, Bernie Sanders did himself some favors. And I've, I was kind of curious about that because mm-hmm. you know we see him this time around as opposed to 2016 when really it was him and Hillary Clinton and that was it. And he was mm-hmm. really able to differentiate himself so easily mm-hmm. and so uh, uh, evocatively and effectively. And now among uh, 19 other candidates, uh, some of whom are as progressive, if I can use that word, as as he presented himself four years ago, how do you think he sort of measures up this time around in this bigger
2: field? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Uh, One thing I said in in my piece about the debates was that his message certainly is less fresh this time around. Elizabeth Warren is for Medicare for all. So was Kamala Harris. Mm -hmm. I think a, a handful of other candidates that first night were as well. So the debates in some way, what made them interesting or one of the interesting facets of them was how much the Democratic Party has seemingly moved left, at least at the presidential level, after, in the wake of Bernie's run in 2016. So his, his message certainly seems less fresh. It's clear he's a little bit stalled in the polls. He's a, about – depending on the mm-hmm. poll you look at, maybe – between 15 and 20%. Mm-hmm. But I, I I did point out his message in foreign policy was distinctive. And I do wonder if going forward, that's something that, because so many of his domestic issues have become, you know, pr- pretty commonly held views in, in the party, or at least among the presidential candidates, that that might be one area he can distinguish himself in going forward.
1: Yeah, and I actually, I think that there might be a disconnect between the way his performance and the debates has been covered and like, the mass media versus how people actually perceived him. Because I saw um, one poll, 538 release that said that he actually had the highest favorability rating among all the candidates followed by Biden after <laughs> that debate. So,
0: followed by Biden. Followed, interestingly followed enough. Followed
1: by Biden, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So
0: there was something to sort of, I don't know, take with a grain of salt or, or I don't know, be sort of cautious about. And certainly, well, I guess, uh, you know, uh, I think, Matt, you, you said and I think uh, we've sort of – we're sort of in agreement and maybe conventionalism is, is suggesting this as well that uh, I think Biden hurt himself the most or certainly did himself the fewest favors. Yeah. And do you think – obviously, there's still m- big support behind him, the fundraising and the, and various allies and, and the establishment part of the party. Is, a, is there a time to think that, oh, my goodness, maybe
2: Biden will have to be – will be gone sooner than we think? That's a really good question. I don't know. Uh, Like you said, he has raised a lot of money, Mm -hmm. but it's mostly been from bigger donors. Mm -hmm. So it's not the amount of money he has on hand is not an indication of his popular support. He's still first in the polls, but depending on the poll you look at, he he might have dropped up to ten points Mm -hmm. from the first debate. Mm -hmm. And I do not think he's going to wear well on the debate stage. There's twelve debates over the course of the next year, and you know he just he's not sharp. He doesn't seem to. Anyone anyone could have known this was coming from Harris. Yeah, she was certainly prepared for it and what was shocking was that he was not, mm-hmm. that he wasn't able to game out or he was too stubborn to take the advice of his advisors mm. on how to respond to this. And if that keeps up, I think he's just going to look worse and worse and to, to be honest – I thought the the format helped him because he only had to get through 60 seconds. And he cut and himself off a few times. And he cut actually. himself off a few times, but if he has to actually string together a coherent response over 2 minutes, I just don't think that's something he's really capable of right now.
0: Yeah, I think I'm I, I'm in agreement.
2: You know, I want to talk a little bit and
0: uh, we don't have to spend a ton of time on this, but I was really struck by the the format of the debate, in terms of the production, the way NBC <laughs> chose to stage uh-huh, it, and uh-huh. I, I use the, t- the, the the term "stage" purposely, I was really struck by it. But what do you, what do you think this sort of says about where we are with contemporary, especially presidential politics? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, one thing I noticed about it on those lines was that the moderation of the debate was truly abysmal. Like it really felt like there yeah. there's I feel like the era of being in a reality T V show age of politics felt like it totally bled over into how this debate was produced. Mm. But also in the fact that the moderators seemed really reticent to even to even cut in or to have any sort of structure or format. It was kind of it seemed very lazy in my opinion.
2: Yeah, I, I mentioned this in the piece. I thought it was a really poorly moderated set of debates, especially the second night. It just seemed to get more out of control. Mm. For instance, I was very disappointed by the number of times Chuck Todd seems – this was all on MSNBC. Chuck Todd seemed obsessed with asking these – questions where I'd say, raise your hand if mm-hmm. if you support X, Y, or Z, mm-hmm. or give a one-word answer. Mm-hmm. Like, what is our greatest geopolitical threat? One answer, mm-hmm. or one-word answer. Mm-hmm. You know, that's mm-hmm. just, that's a, an insult to our intelligence. Mm-hmm. And, but I think you're right that more broadly, it is pitched almost like a reality show. Mm-hmm. And even if you go back, I've watched some clips from the 2008 debates. They were much more sober. Mm-hmm. Um, you can almost see it's been steadily moving this way i yeah. think uh, you know i think because it was mostly bernie and hillary in 2016 that that had a different feel cuz by the yeah. end it was really the two of them but when you look at the republican debates last time in 2016 you really got the sense yeah. that there's 17 people on stage and it really had that that reality show feel, and I, I, I'm afraid that you know this is just seems to be standard right now.
0: Yeah, and I wonder if you know, it, it, here we are. I think sort of uh, people who are kind of after two years of Trump, exhausted, weary, angry, everything else, really sort of thirsting for something of substance, and this is what's presented. And and initially, I think when Elizabeth Warren was posed the first question the first night, it felt so restorative uh, mm-hmm. somehow, and then it just devolved and. Yeah. I, I think
1: the second night of debates in particular felt it was just it felt very catty in a sense. Like there was mm. this one line, Kamala Harris, sort of cut off a fight between Bernie Sanders mm. and who, where she was like, "Americans don't want to watch a food fight; they want to know how they're going to put food on the table." And then yeah. she does. She like later on went to kind of use the same sort of rhetorical practices that they were using earlier. So it yeah, felt like yeah. it was just like a fight to see who could have the flashiest quips and yeah. get attention yeah. that way.
2: And I, you know, since I did complain about the format, I want to say. I'm not arguing that the DNC should, at this stage, have cut out a bunch of candidates. I'm fine with two debates of 10 candidates, let's say. I don't know what the ideal number is, but in principle, I'm fine with that. But why not say, okay, you have two minutes. Explain your plan for what you think is the most important issue facing the country. Mm -hmm. You could do that. Mm -hmm. The time Chuck Todd spent on the one-word answer questions or people raising their hand or the the candidates spent – you know, talking over each other, you could have you could have those many that many people on stage and still get to more substantive questions. I think. All right, so next debates, July thirtieth, July thirty
0: first, in Detroit. Matt, one word. No. <laughs> 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 uh, and Nicole and jump into uh, what what are we looking for? What are we hoping for? Anticipating anything different, or is this yeah. just the next in a long slog of debates over the next uh, sixteen
2: months? Well, I think one thing I'm looking forward to is. Because the first round of debates, uh, names were drawn out of a hat. They basically divided candidates into two two categories, the higher polling ones and the lower polling ones, and then they randomized the assignments to the debates from that. That meant that Elizabeth Warren was not on stage with the other front runners: Bernie, Biden, Kamala Harris, Mayor Pete, if you want to include him in that list. So I'm really looking forward to seeing her on stage with the other top contenders because she's someone – she's so articulate – She's so, she's so brilliant. I think the debate format is one that will serve her well. Mm-hmm. So I'm especially interested to see how, say, she'll talk about Medicare for all versus how Bernie might talk about Medicare for all or how she might relate to Harris or Biden. And so I'm, that's what I'm really looking for is to, to seeing all the main candidates on, this, on the same stage and how they kind of stack up.
1: Yeah, definitely. And actually, I think it would also be nice if the places that the questions came from were more crowdsourced or actually came mm-hmm. from the American people themselves, because there's no way of really knowing how the questions that were asked in the last debate were chosen. And it seemed like they didn't always reflect what people actually want to know about the candidates at all. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> that's true. All right. Uh, Matt Sittman, thanks. Nicole Ann, thanks. Thank and look, you. For, look for Matt's piece online and be checking the Commonweal website regularly in the coming months because we'll have a lot about politics and we'll be back here to talk about politics too, most likely. Thanks. Thank you. you. All right. So from a good talk about uh, the democratic debates to a new book by an author that uh, Kate Lucky, our managing editor, and Regina uh, Munch, our assistant editor, recently spoke with. And who did uh, – so you talked to Jenny O'Dell. and Just tell the folks who that uh...
4: – Yes. She's an artist and writer, and she teaches at Stanford University. And her new book is called How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy.
0: And uh, so what do you think were some of the highlights of the talk? I mean, you guys have been pretty excited about this. I've been overhearing you in the office saying how great the talk went. So.
5: Yeah. I mean – the book is in some ways a self-help book. It's it's helping readers to think about the ways that they're plugged into the attention economy, how their attention is being mined by companies for profit. And it encourages people to find ways to resist that economy in place. So. She has some concrete suggestions like bird watching or noticing the architecture or the people on a bus if you're in an urban environment. But the book's also really deeply meditational. It's more than self-help. And I think that's what Regina and I really liked about it is that she deals with philosophy and history and visual art all to make sort of an argument about what it means to be human and what we lose spiritually and environmentally and historically when we're distracted all the time. Mm
4: -hmm. And she talks about localism and how important attention is, requires time and space uh, to be able to act effectively, to think well.
0: It all sounds pretty great now. What we'll be hearing from her in a second, but was there anything from the interview itself that sort of stuck out?
4: I was impressed with how plugged in she is and that she doesn't hate technology. She uses social media but also knows how to pull away.
0: Well, that's pretty pretty provocative. All right. So without further ado, why don't we get to the interview? Thanks, guys.
5: Hello, this is Kate Lucky, one of the editors here at Commonweal. And I'm Regina Munch, also an editor at Commonweal.
4: And we're talking with Jenny O'Dell, an artist and writer who teaches at Stanford University. Her new book is How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Jenny, thanks for talking with us. Thanks for having me. So your book is called How to Do Nothing. What does it mean to do nothing? Why should we do nothing?
3: (laughs) I think that it's probably maybe obvious from the fact that it's an entire book that I don't actually mean nothing. (laughs) I think I really just mean um, nothing from the point of view of how we traditionally understand productivity. So like having something to show for your time, the idea that time is money. You know, these ideas kind of suggest a certain way of spending, even the, the phrase spending time I think says a lot. And so I really, you know, by the word nothing, I just mean anything outside of that. So for me personally, that means anything that involves listening, observing, any kind of sort of looking at things without analysis or judgment. You know, my go-to example in the book is bird watching, um, which is a very, you know, Arguably unproductive activity, but, um, you know, one of the most meaningful things that I know of to do. So, yeah, it really just it's only nothing from the perspective of how we typically think of, you know, doing something or nothing with our time. But I've actually found it really compelling how, you know, after publishing the book, like hearing about different ways that people, you know, already have of doing quote unquote nothing because those things aren't represented in terms of like our work or how we express ourselves on social media. It's like not something that's super visible.
5: We were especially interested in the idea of nothing often encompassing maintenance or care and how those are often gendered activities. So we were Mm -hmm. talking about things like cooking and laundry today as we were preparing for this interview and how those are things we do every day. There are never things that we could You know, boil down to a tweet. (laughs) They're not exciting. They're about caring for things that are already there. So, could you talk a little bit about that? The idea of maintenance and care as another form of doing nothing, along with observing and paying attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and
3: and I should say, I I
5: think they're really bound up
3: together because
5: I think you know the practice of care and maintenance
3: is a form of attention. It's like paying attention to supporting something or keeping something alive. Mm So a lot of the book, the ideas from the book came out of spending time in the rose garden near my apartment, which I talk about a lot in the book. And, you know, inevitably. And it's on the cover of your book as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the cover of the book is Wild Roses. But uh, I, you know, I've spent a lot of time there. I now know several of the gardeners and it's just really remarkable um, how much volunteer work goes into maintaining that space. And, And some of my favorite times to observe that are in the winter. Um, When there are not a lot of people um, in the rose garden and it's not the time, you know, it's not the rose garden time of year, but anyone who, you know, keeps roses knows that there's all this stuff that you have to do in the winter to make sure that things kind of flourish the way you want them to in the summer. And so I just, I think being around that, you know, just observing that made me start thinking about, yeah, the amount of work that goes into processes of maintenance and how it's often either not recognized, not valorized. Um, and because it's often, it appears to be just keeping something the same. Um, it's not kind of putting something new in the world in an obvious way. It, again, doesn't feel quite as visible or easy to kind of point to the results of that as, as with other things. Um, and my other really big inspiration besides the Rose Garden was the artist, Later Laterman Euclides, who has been an artist in residence with the New York Sanitation Department for a very long time. And she you know one of her projects was shaking the hands of you know thousands of sanitation men and telling each one of them thank you for keeping new york city alive and so a lot of her work is about kind of recognizing that labor and the importance of it um and also her own work as a mother and the um, as she puts it like the enormous amount of repetitive tasks that are kind of not recognized as work not traditionally recognized as work and not recognized as artwork and so You know, I quote the exhibition proposal that she wrote where she proposes just doing all of the tasks that she does as a wife and a mother and just says, my work will be the work.
4: (laughs) One of my favorite parts of your book was that you say we should replace FOMO, the fear of missing out with NOMO, the necessity of missing out or possibly missing out. And your ideas about attention are so place-based and attention is based on a local commitment. What can you say more about the like attention to the local and uh, maybe bioregionalism you bring up as well? Yeah.
3: Yeah. That also is something that kind of is something I started thinking about at the Rose Garden because, you know, it's, it's a Rose Garden, but it's kind of, it's a, it's not a traditional Rose Garden. It's surrounded by a lot of, you know, oak trees and, um, you know, not necessarily like a ton of native species, but it is a kind of like cultivated, but semi wild space, especially for where it is. And obviously, there are a lot of birds there. And I, I had gotten into bird watching in the past couple of years. And I just kind of found that, particularly in, you know, the moment when I started thinking about these things, which was not that long after the election, there was something about paying attention to the things that are living around me, the ecological community around me, um, these things that had kind of always been in front of me that I never, you know, had the names for and maybe wasn't even paying attention to. There was something about that that was more grounding than anything I had ever come across. Certainly more grounding than I think like a digital detox retreat would be for me. It's just kind of like something to grab onto that feels real and kind of given. Like it's, it's something, you know, no one, no one put those things here. Uh, I mean like forms of life, right. That are around you. It's like those things are not engineered. And, um, and in that way they're very different from, you know, the kind of like algorithmic recommendations that I'm interacting with online and so, yeah, I I just found in my own experience that getting to know more and more about my bioregion, you know, like, you know, the watershed that I'm part of, but also kind of the Pacific Northwest in general, and just kind of like really getting a sense of, of where and when I am has only been like more helpful and inspiring to me over time.
5: I love that. I'm a, I'm a native of the Pacific <laughs> Northwest. I'm an Oregonian. Regina knew I was going to bring that up as soon coming. as I said it. So... Throughout the book, you sort of contrast this really beautiful writing about nature and being connected to your bioregion and also being connected to other people, whether that's through political action, through strikes, through just looking at people and viewing them as human beings on a bus or train. Like There are many examples of being in your environment, urban or outside of urban spaces, Um That's all in contrast to this thing called the attention economy in this digital world, which is in the subtitle of your book, Resisting the Attention Economy. So how do you position this deep listening and attention and care that you've been talking about against the attention economy? What is it? What does it have to do with capitalism? And what does it do to us? Yeah. I mean, it's sort of in
3: the phrase, right? Attention economy. It's like an economy that buys and sells attention and it also I feel like sells you yourself (laughs) like it sells you an idea of it sells you an image of yourself and an image of your life that is sort of like a product and that it could be optimized and made to perform better and it sort of assumes that you know there's a goal that's sort of like a point in space that you should be constantly aiming for and anything that you do or interact with that's not in that direction is a waste it's a waste of time. It's a waste of your attention. And I and you know, the the sort of it goes without saying that like the the mindset that you are in when you engage with the attention economy is rather rather shallow, kind of myopic, trapped in the present, often a sort of anxiety-ridden present that doesn't really expand outward very easily to other other times or spaces or contexts. Um and so the things that I'm kind of opposing to that are just this kind of willingness to actually be surprised and have genuine encounters with things that are genuinely outside of you. So yeah, you know, I have a whole section about the bus, (laughs) just like sitting on the bus and how, for me, that's really important as kind of one of the last spaces in which I'm thrown together with strangers, um, that I have no instrumental reason to be around. There's nothing that I can get from them or from being around them. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's not even like, you know, going to a party or something, and these people are like potential friends or something. You know, it's like it's just like no; these are people who are, you know, like me going to some place where they need to go for their own reasons, and their life has a weight and reality just like mine. And I think you know you can also extend that beyond humans to, you know, animals and, and other forms of life that um, are also doing their own thing and have their own weight and reality and kind of center of gravity.
5: Definitely, there's yeah. a deep humility to that that I really appreciate, and it's yeah. kind of. What we think about at the magazine a lot, whenever we're doing especially environmental writing, is like the humility of the human being as you know a steward and caretaker who has obligations to the earth, but also something that the earth exists outside of and has mm-hmm. its own like r- logic and rhythm and beauty.
4: Yeah. I like that you talk about Jenny that the idea of being quote alone in nature makes no sense when <laughs> you really treat things as the you bring up Boober the a vow rather than an it.
3: Yeah, and you know it was funny. I was just talking to someone earlier about this trail that I was on recently for the first time. That's um, not too far from here. It's kind of in the hills by Redwood City, and that I was alone, and I was using the iNaturalist app, which I talk a lot about a lot in the book. But it helps you identify plants by taking photos of them. And uh, and since I've been using it for a while, I also went there because I'm I'm familiar from using it last year with different flowers that grow around here, and I just kind of went out of sheer curiosity to see sort of like who's home, you know, right now, like who's growing. Um, and the only people I saw on the trail were trail runners. Like I saw two trail runners the entire time. And I was just thinking about how different their experience of the space was from mine, not to say that mine is inherently better, but I would guess that they were there because it's, it's pretty and uncrowded um, and the the plants and birds and whatnot are sort of a nice backdrop And that's probably how I would have understood those things as well up until like maybe two or three years ago. And now it felt much more like I was going there to have a meeting.
5: Yeah. It's interesting because I guess you could say that in an ideal world, a social media platform would also be a place where you would go to have a meeting and see who's there and see what they're up to, get a sense of their life for a little bit and then leave. But why do you think our social networks... Don't work that way, or how do you think they could work that way? You have a part at the end of the book where you talk about how we could use the internet to connect us instead of making us feel fragmented and scattered all the time.
3: Yeah, I think it's an issue of design um, and and also incentive. So you know, if you're a commercial social media company, your incentive for designing things is not to create that space of encounter, although it may be in your financial interest to sort of simulate it. But really what you're trying to do is just keep the max number of users on your site for as long as possible, engaging as much as possible in order to advertise to those users as, you know, as much as possible and sell sell data. And, you know, these are, you know, business objectives. (laughs) So uh, as long as that's the case, you know, I think we're going to have this sort of weird version of what kind of feels like a commons, but isn't really. And just one example of that is like the, the algorithms that determine what you see and what you don't see and kind of in what order, which is not the same as for someone else. It's, it's become very obvious, like recently how, yeah, how just how fragmenting something like social media can be. So yeah, one of the kind of counter examples that I give at the end of the book is the possibility of like an open source decentralized network that isn't really owned by anyone um, and we have a few kind of existing examples of that, that are really interesting. A couple years, maybe more than a couple of years ago, I was teaching an internet art class. And for that reason, I decided to try getting on Second Life. And you know, for anyone who doesn't know what Second Life is, it's, uh, it's almost, it's a little bit like the Sims, I guess, but it's like a, you know, it's like kind of world where you have an avatar and you, and you walk around physically, you virtually walk around and you see other avatars. And you can you know buy stuff and you can get a house and and talk to people, and um, the it, the heyday was kind of early 2000s, So I had missed the heyday, and it was kind of a ghost town by the time I got there. But I had this really weird avatar that was kind of like a polka dot body with a with a giant eyeball head because I thought that would be funny, and I was really disappointed by how all the, you know a lot of the other avatars that I saw were just like normal or. Or people had gone to great lengths to make them look like themselves, which I was like, it could be anything. Um, so I think they were just kind of doing their own thing. But but I I wandered into this crowded area, and I saw this growing skeleton, and like that like stood out from all of the other sort of normal avatars. And I like I went up to the skeleton, and you know you can chat on there, and it was like, hey, I like your skeleton, and it was this guy from Russia who was putting everything that I said through Google Translate in order to be able to communicate with me. And we had this like very like weirdly like poetic and haunting conversation. And it was like, yeah, it was like late at night. And I I wrote about this in a, I have an essay on Medium about like randomness on, on the internet. But, you know, afterwards I thought about like how, you know, it's not technically difficult to talk to someone on the internet in Russia. Like that's not like a feat of, of technology at this point, but it felt like it had the same feeling of a chance encounter. The fact that I feel like there were kind of maybe at one point spaces where you could have that kind of, you know, genuine and curious interaction with strangers and um, strangers that were not recommended to you by some algorithm, but really just strangers. I think that you know, as an artist who you know my my background before this was mainly in visual art, and a lot of the work that I did was almost arguing that sometimes. Not that the context means more than the content of something, but that it's sort of equally as important in understanding the content, that like the content is nothing without the context. So, you know, for example, I was an artist in residence at the dump in San Francisco. And uh, my project there was to research 200 objects that I found, you know, in the dump and like sort of monomaniacally research them. Like, where was this made? Why was this made? What is it made out of? How much did it cost? Like this sort of long life story of each object. And so, you know, the exhibition was pretty much just these objects on shelves. And I I mentioned in the book that one woman asked me if I actually made anything, or did I just put things on shelves? And I was like, yes, I just put things on shelves. But obviously, the bulk of my work was in gathering context. And so, you know, that show had each object had a tag that you could scan with your phone, and it would bring up all of that information. And that's what the actual work is. And that project really taught me how much context has to do with patience. Like context is a a result of patients, the patients to like sit and look for more information than you're immediately presented with, and you know to go back to sort of humility. I think some humility is required in doing that. Um, it's like the humility to recognize that you might not have the whole story, and I I just can't help but notice how different that is from how we interact with information, specifically on social media, where it's like, you know, the extreme example would be like having a knee jerk reaction to a headline. Or like sharing something that has a headline without reading it because you think you already agree. Um, and you know, I just the other day saw someone sharing something that was very sort of incendiary, and then you know, someone in the comments is like, "Hey, this is from five years ago." You know, <laughs> it's the patience to kind of like like disentangle yourself from the emotional reaction that a lot of these things are sometimes designed to spark in order to get you to engage with them, it's this kind of like stepping back from that and being like, wait, what What would happen if I actually made the decision of where to get this information and, and to get more information and to try to get confl- conflicting or just like different kind of sources, you know, the sort of like library research model of, of getting information. And for the monetary benefit of someone else as well. Right. Absolutely. But it's like you don't even have the time to notice something like that.
5: Yeah, and there's a political component. One thing I loved about this book is that all of the different ideas that you play with and the examples from psychology and economics and design and visual art like sort of bleed into each other. And so your conversations about the need for context and space and time also lend themselves to a political argument you make about resisting in place. And I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about that.
3: One of the reasons it was important for me to make that argument is you know if you call something how to do nothing. I'm I think that the my chapter on resistance comes right after my chapter on retreat. <laughs> I mean the title is literally the impossibility of retreat. And so, you know, like one possible reaction to the situation is to just like, you know, head for the hills. And so the the resistance in place for me is an important kind of, you know, alternative to that where it's like, no, you can still participate and be resp- and feel responsibility and act on your responsibility, but you can do it in a way where you're not participating as asked, you know, like not participating in the attention economy, like a good customer. Um, And so, and it definitely, yeah, it does tie into that idea of context because I think like ultimately a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about in the book could just be boiled down to take a moment to not like act in the, or think in a default way. And especially when the default is determined by, yeah, like a commercial social media company that um, is making money off of anxiety, basically. And so a lot of that, I think, has to do with like understanding, kind of like knowing your enemy, rather than just sort of like fleeing, like, you know, like quitting all of your social media and never engaging with the news like ever again. <laughs> like instead of that, just kind of like being like, okay, well, I'm I'm here and I'm kind of standing in the middle of all this, but I internally and psychologically i am going to sort of dislodge myself enough that I can, that I can look around, um, that I can like kind of start to seek this context and yeah, again, like not, not be a, not be a good user from the point of view of, um, how this social media platform is designed.
4: Can you say more about how Thomas Merton fits into the question of not whether to engage, but how to engage with the rest of the world? Certainly he was in a monastery away from the world in
3: one way, but was always engaged. Totally. Totally. And I think maybe significantly, um, like in terms of like how I structured the book, you know, he's the bridge between that chapter on retreat and the chapter on refusal. So, you know, after I talk about the 1960s communes and the sort of like attempt to drop out and this attempt to remove oneself from politics and all of the problems that that ran into you know then that's the point at which I turn to Thomas Merton as a model of re- retreating in a different way, almost like mentally or psychologically, but still remaining quite responsible to the present and and acting in the present.
5: To that end, I think that your conclusion about manifest dismantling provides some really helpful examples of like physical, tangible actions that happen in the world, when people pay attention to the right things and also when they meet each other in person and seems connected to me to that idea of resisting in place in ways that may not be social media fueled (laughs) that may not lend themselves to the fire and fury of Twitter. Can you talk about some of those examples of manifest dismantling that you gave at the end of the book? Yeah. And, and maybe I should just say
3: like that, that phrase is something that I kind of made up and it's supposed to sound like the opposite of manifest destiny. (laughs) Um, And so, uh, most of the examples that I give are things that can be somewhat likened to um like ecological restoration. So, you know, the word dismantling, it's really I mean it as sort of like um, you know, if you're resisting in place and you are, you know, like, you know, I think earlier in the book I say what, you know, what would back to the land mean if you understood the land to be where you already are. <laughs> so if you kind of take that impulse and, and apply it to where you already are, I think you get things like, you know, habitat restoration, but also Anything that is sort of patiently working to dismantle systems of injustice on whatever scale it is around you. And for me, again, it comes very much back to the idea of maintenance and sort of meeting other people in the actual common ground that you have and just looking um, at what can be done to support these, you know, to support forms of life and care and maintenance and the kinds of things that I'm talking about earlier in the book. So, I mean, it's, it's not an accident that the very end of the book is about me visiting a, well, this is spoiler alert, but um, <laughs> I visited um, a park uh, that was once part of a military kind of area in Oakland. So it was right next to the, it's in the port, actually. It belongs to the port now. And it has, it was dredged at one point uh, for ships. And so the beach, there's a kind of little tiny beach that's been restored, um, mostly for shorebirds. And then there's an observation tower that's named after a local activist who uh, is no longer alive, but was very instrumental in raising um, awareness of environmental racism in Oakland. So uh, the fact that the there were like spent nuclear fuel rods going through the port really close to a lower income part of, of Oakland. So the whole park is just kind of this like amazing example of what I would call manifest is mantling like both on an environmental kind of habitat level, but also on a social political level. And at the end of the day, right. It's, it's a park. And so you go there now and you you just see like people, you know, on a break from work or just like sitting and enjoying themselves. And like, that is the image that I would like to have of like progress, (laughs) which um, in that, that conclusion, I'm very much opposing to the sort of like capital P like techno determinist progress.
4: You've said that, After the release of the book, as you've been talking to people and hearing from people who've read it, that they've shared with you different ways
3: that they've resisted in place.
4: Can you tell us what any of those are?
3: I think I would not equate doing nothing with activism. (laughs) It's kind of like an intermediary step. It's like a a way station, kind of. And so it's something it's like a form of, you know, you could compare it to things like rest um, or reflection that are, you know, exist in a kind of like dialectical relationship with action and doing things and saying things. And that's something like personally, I can attest to, like, I, I talk in the book about these a family of crows that I have befriended. And initially, it was sort of like looking at what they are, like imagining what they see when they look at me, helped me kind of envision myself as, you know, the animal that I ultimately am. Outside of the kind of uh, human and like social identity that I that social media encourages me to think about all the time, but you know, other than that, like today, I was just looking at them and looking at what they were looking at and seeing them kind of like notice things happening on the street, you know, like and this kind of funny reminder that that they and I inhabit the same reality, although in very different ways. Other forms of life can invite you into other ways of looking and forms of attention.
5: Which is so refreshing. I mean, I think both Regina and I had the feeling when we finished this book that we were suddenly much more aware of the physical world around us. And mm-hmm. you talk in the book about the realness of things, like the table under your hand or the tea in your mouth, and that this is actually the real world. It's so funny that we need reminding of that.
3: Yeah. And I, I would say too, it's like it's it's the reality of it is refreshing, but it's also like the reason you know I mentioned so much the example of of ecology and you know just non human uh, life in the book is because really like it's so deeply weird and fascinating. <laughs> like I grew I grew up in this area and I you know went to lots of summer camps in the Santa Cruz Mountains, so I'm very familiar with banana slugs and I've seen like banana slugs my entire life. But I was on a hike last week alone and I saw first of all I saw probably like. 50 banana slugs on this trail and then I saw two of them mating they had sort of like formed this circle and it was strangely like it was so weird and beautiful and just like I was you know I just like kind of I literally like sat on the ground and just like watched for a while it was like what is this world it's so like like I thought I knew what a banana slug was but I like you you never like it's that's what's so different about things especially like living things in the world and, and, you know, something like a very sort of reified idea as it's presented online. is like, I, I more and more feel like I don't, I'll never really get to the bottom of these, you know, things that are alive and I don't want to get to the bottom of them. Like I enjoy being surprised all the time and just kind of like, you know, that it's like, I went home and I Googled all the stuff about banana slug reproduction. <laughs>
5: like. <laughs> Yeah. There's so much delight there. Maybe we should end. Yeah. Regina speaking of delight and getting not wanting to ever get to the bottom of things, Regina has a pretty funny anecdote from this morning when she had your book on the subway in New York. <laughs> you gotta listen to this.
4: <laughs> um, I was reading the uh, on the subway and as we said that the cover of your book is Wild Roses. It's very pink and bright uh, and beautiful. And uh, I was sitting down and next to me on the on the subway was a woman and who I'm assuming was her daughter, who's maybe two or three on her lap. And I had the book out and she was just staring at the cover. She was totally mesmerized by it. And she would slowly I saw her over the course of a minute, slowly reach her her little finger out to touch it. And she finally <laughs> did it and just looked totally fascinated and in love with the cover of the book. So I <laughs> thought I would let you know. We thought that was cute and, and symbolic. And
3: symbolic. <laughs> yeah. No, that's so funny. I have to tell my mom that because um, she, she takes care of foster children at the moment. Um, she does respite care. So she knows this from that experience, but also from when I was a kid, she said that she has found that if you have a kid in a stroller and you kind of go past like a flowery shrub that like they will just really want to reach out and touch the flowers I suspect that like maybe her doing that a lot when I was a very you know little kid probably had something to do with the fact that like my you know all of my work is about close observation now so (laughs) that's great
5: thanks so much for speaking with us Jenny it was great thank you
0: Okay, so thanks for joining us. Um, we'll be back in two weeks with our next edition, and I'm actually uh, really grateful to be here with Griffin Olenek, who's our producer, and Griffin's got a few things that he would like to say. Hi, Dominic. <laughs> hey, Griffin. Um, so just before we sign off, um, you may have noticed a few changes uh, in this episode of the Common Wheel Podcast. We hope that you like them. Uh, we encourage you to go on iTunes and rate and review us, hopefully favorably. Um, but if you have suggestions for guests you'd like to hear from, topics you'd like to hear discussed, you can always send us an email at editors at magazine.org. You can tweet at us, post on our Facebook page. You can even go on our website and give us a call. (laughs) That'd be great. Looking forward to all those calls. Thanks, Griffin. Okay, thank you. Goodbye. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olinick and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. David Dalt did the editing. This is Dominic Preziosi. Thanks for listening.